Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Controversial plans to replace ITV's Southbank Studios with new skyscrapers approved. Under the Spotlight, the global property fair where London's public housing is bought and sold. A conservation row erupts over plans to demolish the 1980s Angel Square in Islington. And the Royal Institute of British Architects seeks a new head of culture, just as its diversity chief leaves a year into the role. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Hattie Hartman. Hattie is AJ Sustainability Editor and host of the Climate Champions podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Merlin. I'm a big fan of the London. Plans for a, quote, extremely unpopular 26-storey office block on the site of the former ITV London studios on London's South Bank have been approved following a heated three-hour planning committee meeting on Tuesday night. It's a story that's been covered in the AJ and across the built environment media. Dubbed 72 Upper Ground, the contentious £400 million project would completely transform views of London's iconic South Bank and Riverfront and has been designed by the leading architectural practice Make. Make is the same firm that replaced a 1980s office block in Broadgate, which many thought should be listed, with a huge new headquarters for Swiss Bank UBS, and also designed a series of new buildings linked by skywalks on London Wall. Images of the 72 Upper Ground proposal, which have been shared heavily on Twitter, show a huge development with two tower elements standing at 14 and 25 storeys, as well as a six-storey connecting podium. It would contain 79,000 square metres of office and associated commercial space, as well as 7,000 metres squared of cultural space and up to 4,000 metres squared uh, space for shops, cafes and bars. Despite more than 260 objections to the project, including two local councillors and even the local MP, the contentious scheme was supported by planning officers at Lambeth Council, who said it would be, quote, a high-quality, sustainable development in a suitable location that will deliver significant benefits. Despite such praise, a planning report, however, acknowledged that the scheme was, quote, clearly controversial and extremely unpopular. Opponents said 
the proposals are too large and bulky. Critics added that the overbearing building would negatively affect the setting of the Grade 2 listed IBM building and the Grade 2 style listed National Theatre, both designed by Dennis Lasden, a very famous brutalist architect. Objections were also made by local residents who are set to lose daylight from the new building. 72 Upper Ground is located a short distance from the proposed site of the controversial Garden Bridge, which was abandoned five years ago. The site was home to ITV's London headquarters until recently. Originally known as the South Bank Television Centre, the iconic complex was designed by the acclaimed architect Graham Dorban, features a 24-storey tower already alongside 10 television studios and was completed in 1972. Um, so, Hattie, what do you make of Make's proposals for 72 Upper Ground? Uh, why do you think it was approved? I mean, this is a project that was approved 6-1 to one at the planning committee last night. Um, and what does this outcome mean for London and its built environment? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's really refreshing to see talented architects finally start to think seriously about orientation and design different elevations in response to the sun's movements. I think Make's scheme, while very dense, perhaps too dense, does successfully reduce the overall impact of the project by introducing setbacks, terraces, recessed floors, uh, and balconies to break down the scale of these two towers. What's interesting about the scheme is that different facades have different amounts of glazing, as well as external shading and blinds where needed, but it all has a uniform spandrel treatment for simplicity. Critics will certainly say that reducing operational energy to net zero is tinkering around the edges of the climate emergency, and that nothing justifies all the embodied carbon in a new development like this, and they certainly have a point. Most of the objections to the project are from residents who live in the blocks to the south. Clearly, daylight in some of those units, particularly on the lower floors, will be seriously impacted. But this led me to wonder why there isn't some affordable housing delivered as part of this scheme. It could provide much-needed housing and increase 24-hour activity around the site. Uh, Merlin, you're a South Londoner. What's your take on it? Well, I think it's very big. And I think that um, it was interesting that the committee members said stuff about it being reminiscent of the feel of the South Bank. And for me, the feel of the South Bank is like all the people and the trees and the lights. And it's actually more of an emotional feel than a kind of architectural one. Um, but certainly, if it is tall, it's like six to eight stories tall. Um, there is some tall new South Bank stuff, like going on around Blackfriars Station on the southern side and also South Bank Place. Um, I think South Bank Place is a bit overbearing. I think the old South Bank Tower was kind of cool on its own, but um, I think all the stuff that's been clustered around it just seems like um, like a very condensed version of Canary Wharf just on a tiny site, and so I don't really think it works. So I, I'm a little sceptical, but I'm really interested to hear your take on 72 Upper Ground, the proposals. I mean, one thought that strikes me, and obviously we talk about retrofit an awful lot on this show, um, is the fact that a building is being demolished. Okay, so there's a quite significant large building designed by Graham Dorbin from the 1970s on that site. So make will replace it with another one, right? Um, and now obviously there's an embodied carbon cost, okay? So for this to make sense, am I right in understanding that make's building would basically have to stay there forever? It would have to be like the, fi the final thing on that site. Or, you know, if you build that and then that gets demolished itself in, uh, you know, 50 years time, which is what what's happening here, does that kind of undermine the whole proposition? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to justify all the embodied carbon in in this scheme. I don't know the site well enough to visualize exactly what's there. I do know Gabriel's Wharf, and certainly this will dwarf Gabriel's Wharf. And it's only once embodied carbon starts to be actually regulated, such as the proposed Part Z to the building regulations, and that requirements to justify demolition get tougher, that this will start to change. But I still maintain that there are positive messages in this scheme in terms of building massing and orientation. And architects are incredibly ingenious at problem solving when given constraints. And like the Bloomberg building, this is a complex, high-tech approach to climate emergency, an active double skin. Uh, we can't do that everywhere. I'm just thinking one of the things that's interesting about 72 Upperground, about this ITV Studios redevelopment, I mean, it's clearly caught a lot of attention in local media, on Twitter, social media. And, um, you know, it has been described as a highly controversial and unpopular project. Um, you know, it's clear that um, there's a lot of emotions tied up into this landmark building and change on the South Bank generally. Um, but is, is there a kind of feeling that actually... Sometimes when people go down a retrofit route, when sometimes people convert an existing building, for example, um, there was a proposal to convert the IBM building next door rather than demolish and rebuild it, then is that maybe sometimes a more popular route, a route which is less likely to end up being mired in controversy? And with that in mind, um, why is it that developers are still willing to take the hard road, to take all that flack and sort of go for these controversial demolish and rebuild Uh, options? Well, the market still drives this. There's no doubt about it. And I think people get attached to their neighborhoods the way they are. You know, you don't like to see these big mega developments coming in. And this does qualify as a mega development. And, you know, it's it's been been kind of uh, in the press labeled as highly controversial. I think it most of the objections, I didn't read every single one, but are coming from the residents right there. And they have a point. You know, they had lovely access to, to the river and now they're going to have this massive development. Yeah, well, it's certainly, um, I guess there's that question of, uh, is there anything imminent that would actually make it a better market decision to keep a building like this rather than demolish it? I mean, is there something... Uh, a car embodied carbon pricing or new regulations that might absolutely i haven't studied the embodied carbon but i'm not sure the overall scheme has been evaluated in that way Uh, i mean that will change things that will drive change Last week saw hundreds of architects, developers and public sector people involved in the regeneration of our built environment jet off to the south of France to quaff wine and talk business. They were there to attend MIPIM, Europe's largest and increasingly most contentious property fair. AJ reporter and MIPIM first-timer Will Ng visited and reported for the magazine. In his candid account of the visit, Ng describes an ominous piece of advice given to him in a taxi from Nice Airport to the hotel. What happens at MIPIM stays at MIPIM. Uh, This was said by a 30-something newly married man who added he was going to curb his drinking this time around because after the last MIPIM, he was hungover for an entire week. It's an odd introduction to, to the Global Property Summit, which is famous for featuring individually branded stalls for cities around the world where mayors and public servants attempt to upsell the privatization and redevelopment of their public assets to the highest bidder. 
So Hattie, what do you think of Mippin? Have you ever been? And is it perhaps time for a rethink of this beachside summit, considering the environmental, social and economic crises threatening the sustainability of the global development industry? Uh, and if we did rethink it, would London benefit? I can confidently say I'm, I'm quite allergic to most of what goes on there. However, 20,000 people still found it worth their while to attend, so we have a ways to go. It's not at Mippin that you're going to find thought leadership about addressing the climate emergency. I'm personally more attracted by the cycle to Mippin group that this year included about 85 riders, including several women. And I'm really intrigued by Padel, a women's offshoot of the Mippin cycle ride, now in its ninth year with a three-day cycle ride from Vienna along the Danube to Budapest in June with 60 women participating. This is a far cry from MIPIM. So my answer is yes, MIPIM needs a rethink. So obviously you've been reporting on sustainability within construction, architecture and development industry for more than 14 years. I mean, you've really said that you don't think MIPIM is necessarily the, the, for, the forum uh, for where the change is going to happen. But is there potentially a scope where there could be more of an emphasis on retrofit or the organisers of the, the festival, the summit, could give people a discount on their stall if they were we're giving a more uh, zero carbon approach or retrofit approach. These are these are really good ideas. I'm all for it. I think we need to do everything, and you know, tweaking MIPIM as a step in the right direction. You know, I spend my life in a bit of a bubble talking to people who are on the leading edge of this whole uh, sustainability agenda. So. Whenever I'm reminded, like certainly MIPIM, you know, where the mainstream is, we have to bring everybody along. Gradual change is not going to do it in a decade, but gradual change will also make change. So we have to do we have to do that as well. Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show with your friends. Uh, the Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity that you probably best know it for the Open House Festival, uh, but we also do all kinds of amazing year-round tours, education programmes, events uh, and all kinds of exciting stuff. Um, the show, along with the festival and the schools programme, is free. Uh, that's because we believe everyone should have access uh, to the tools and the resources that we need to learn about. Uh, and experience our built environment uh, but to keep the show free uh, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of just one coffee per month uh, so if this is you please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate uh, and help us keep these conversations accessible inclusive and honest the 20th Century Society has formally objected to plans to redevelop Angel Square it's also known as One Torrens Street the building is a notable postmodern office block designed by Rock Townsend Architects, completed uh, in 1991. Uh, occupy it occupies a prominent position at the busy crossroads of Islington High Street and City Road, uh, and it is very hard to miss if you're visiting Angel Tube Station. Um, this is a story that's caused a flurry of comments on Twitter, uh, and it's also being picked up by the AJ and other built environment titles. Um, 
In 2021, developers Tishman Speyer, uh, they're the same firm that restored the Allison and Peter Smith and Designed Economist building in St. James's, um, acquired the 126,200 square foot site from Derwent, London, in a deal worth £86.5 million. Um, proposals recently drawn up by AHMM Architects and Lodge for Planning uh, would see a significant redevelopment of the site, involving the removal of the existing facades reconfiguration of floor plates and infilling of an internal courtyard space. The building sits just outside two conservation areas and is not locally listed, uh, yet according to the 20th Century Society acts as a striking gateway to Islington High Street, uh, complementing the Grade 2 listed Cooperative Bank next to the Angel Pub on the opposite corner of the junction. Speculatively built in the late 1980s to provide private office space, the building also incorporated a new entrance for the comprehensively rebuilt Angel Underground Station and a public house on City Road. While the current plans seek to retain the underlying structure, they would still see the complete removal of the brick and stone facade and all decorative elements, with the resulting demolition having a significant environmental impact, according to the society. Consultation documents outline perceived existing issues with the building, such as a tired interior with an inefficient layout not suited to modern occupier needs, uh, with building services towards the end of their usable life and an inefficient and poorly performing facade that has poor energy efficiency. However, the society argues the proposals fail to explore any opportunity for a more understated reconfiguration of the building to address these issues and has urged the architect and developer to pursue a more sympathetic and sustainable scheme. Um, So, Hattie, what do you think of the existing Angel Square building and and what do you think of HMM's uh, proposed redevelopment, which will keep parts of it but make significant changes? Uh, Does the society have a point or, or is the existing building perhaps beyond reuse? Well, I wasn't aware of this proposal, and I certainly know Rock Townsend's postmodern pastiche of an office block over Angel Underground Station. It's impossible to miss, and I've never been a particular fan. When I was an architecture student in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the early 1980s at MIT, we were doing social housing projects and community centers and studying Scarpa and Sharoon, while down the road at Harvard it was all about postmodernism and the Hotel Particulier of the Marais. So I was extremely curious to see why the 20th Century Society was opposing the redevelopment of this site. On closer examination, the AHMM visualizations are completely anodyne. They make the Pilbrown and Partners proposal for the new Marks and Spencer on Oxford Street look good. The HMM scheme for the Angels seems a real missed opportunity at such a prominent intersection, which is also the gateway to Islington. It made me suddenly appreciate the ambition of Rock Townsend's design. Um, In pedestrian terms and plan layout, the proposed scheme does create a pedestrian route through the block and rationalizes a floor plan. But I agree with the 20th Century Society that a more nuanced approach to refurbishment deserves another round. With retrofit, it's really about a thoughtful nuanced approach. And the Angel building is exactly that. While AHMM's proposal for Tishman Spear over the underground station reads as just another bland commercial building. I don't know what you think. That's really, really interesting. I mean, certainly um, 
I'd never been a fan of Angel Square, and, it, and part of it is just because of the way that it meets the pavement at that junction. And it, there's a real dead end. There's like a big curved um, facade. It's a bit like the Unilever building at Blackfriars, and you just feel you just feel like wrong-footed in your arrival in Angel, and you have to walk quite a long way to get to the tube. And then there's a kind of square, and then you start to feel like you're actually in the town. But otherwise, it, it feels like it creates a real, real harsh connection into what's actually a really lovely area. Um, but the way you describe it and the way you compare it to what's proposed and said actually makes me think, yeah, there is something in that building, especially if you stand further back and you see the tower and you see the way it mimics the stuff across the road. Um, but I still think you could, you, you know, one could do something really interesting in a retrofit of the Rock Townsend building. And obviously that is what AHMM's doing. Because that's what's a point that Catherine Croft made when she, who's uh, director of the 20th Century Society when she was on the show, is that retrofit is a very broad term. Um, so it includes projects uh, where you where you strip out everything apart from the frame and significantly change it. And it other, includes other projects like, say, Fairfield Halls in Croydon, where the building's pretty much identical to how it was at the beginning of the £60 million renovation. But So I guess the question I want to ask you is, do we need to be a bit more picky about how we use the retrofit term? And when we advocate ra- retrofit, should we really be saying like 90% of the existing buildings got to stay or something like that? I mean, has, uh, should we go down that route or is that potentially um, going to hamper us? Could it help us? Could it have better results for the people of Islington or not? I think that's I think that's really interesting. I just interviewed uh, Hanif Kara for my podcast and he made a a distinction I hadn't heard before between thin retrofit and thick retrofit. So thin retrofit would be just dealing with the thermal issues in the in in the envelope, whereas thick retrofit, you may be stripping everything out and retaining foundations and structure. Um, I think the only way we're going to solve this is by measuring things and having an evidence-based approach to embodied carbon, because that's the only way you can make these judgments. You know, otherwise it's it's kind of intuition, which is the way uh, architects have designed for centuries. But, you know, where we are now, we need to be measuring things so that we can be sure of the decisions we're making. So that's a really interesting point by Hanif Kaur, who's one of the founders of the AKT2 sort of engineering stars. Um, perhaps we should start using that on the show, thick and thin um, retrofit. And then, I mean, when it comes to the sort of aesthetics or the conservation point... Um, you're less you're less convinced by the need to to retain this postmodernism, or I mean, do you think that someone could do something really nice with that, like open it up, make the ground plane better, make it more welcoming? You're absolutely right that the pedestrian experience around there, including the entrance to the underground station, could be dramatically improved. And you know, maybe there are ways to to rework this this elevation and open open it up. I I, I just think it deserves another look. The first ever Director of Diversity and Inclusion is leaving the Royal Institute of British Architects, that's the RIBA, uh, just over a year after she started in the role. Uh, The RIBA is the historic and main representative body for architects responsible for high-profile awards like the Sterling Prize, and it's based near Oxford Circus. Um, Her departure coincided with the RIBA recruiting for a new Executive Director for Architecture Programmes and Collections. This is effectively a head of culture and someone who would be tasked with maximising access to its considerable collections of photos, drawings and objects. Um, This role was advertised on Guardian Jobs. 
Marsha Ramroop, a former BBC journalist, was appointed last February to implement a comprehensive diversity and inclusion strategy at 66 Portland Place. Uh, but the Institute has confirmed she will be leaving in the next couple of months to focus on other opportunities. Asked about the cuts to the EDI department, that's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Department, the RIBA said it was in the process of agreeing its budget, but there was a collective responsibility to reduce operating costs and deficit. Our EDA work remains one of our key priorities, a spokesperson for the RIBA said. The RIBA brought in Ramroop in a bid to turn over a new leaf following a string of controversies, including promoting cookery classes on International Women's Day. And after its diversity and inclusion manager wrote the charged phrase, all lives matter, on social media in response to the Black Lives Matter protests. Coinciding with Ramroop's departure has been a search for a new head of culture. The new Collections and Programmes Director will be in charge of boosting access to the Institute's 4 million plus collection of priceless drawings, books, photographs and objects. Whoever is chosen for the job will be the most senior cultural programmer within the Institute, uh, which was the subject of much criticism when it shut down its cultural arm. Uh, that was the RIBA Trust, which was responsible for the library, drawings, events, awards and exhibitions just a decade ago. So Hattie, what's this all about? What is the significance of RIBA's head of diversity leaving just a year into the role um, when there is so much important work still needing to be done? There's nothing to say about this except that Marsha Ramroop's departure is a real shame. There were such high hopes at the time of her appointment and a lot of staff buy-in. From what I understand, she was extremely professional and with a polished, process-driven approach, which seems well-suited to the RIBA with its heavy committee structure and risk-averse approach to almost everything. Being a changemaker at the RIBA is challenging. I've seen that in my area. Uh, And diversity is a topic that strikes to the root of the Institute's culture. Sources told the AJ that Marsha's budget was cut by more than half. I think clearly she just didn't get buy-in from the top. Why would you cut this budget of all things. And it, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Something that we covered uh, on Lundown, um, that incident uh, in the show with Andrew War earlier in the year. And, and it rather things, when you, when you look at stuff like that, you think that the head of diversity and inclusion really needs a lot of freedom to be able to go out into the world and win back trust for the Institute. And if it is, as you, as you describe it, that effectively they didn't get buy-in from the higher management, um, yeah, that, that's, that's really tragic. So if you have to spend a lot of your time to win over people internally, how are you supposed to focus on uh, the important work that everybody wants to see the RIBA doing, which is going out there, transforming the world, transforming the profession, and, and building the kind of inclusivity we really want and we know is going to make um, everything a lot more enjoyable and successful for everyone? Absolutely. The RIBA has such stature, particularly internationally, and I was quite hopeful with uh, Simon Alford's approach to the uh, the climate summit that he orchestrated uh, in October as part of his inaugural platform. But this is a serious turn in the wrong direction. So one of the things that's interesting, if we look a bit closer at the RIBA, now obviously it's headquartered in London, it's a major sort of cultural presence in the city that we're in. Um, It's got over 300 staff. Um, Of of this 300 staff, 30 of whom are paid more than £60,000 a year. That's that's a lot. That's a really big amount for people working in this sort of cultural sphere. Um, 
Okay, it has assets of around three hundred million pounds, uh, and it has an income, annual income, of more than twenty million pounds. I can't think of any anything else operating within sort of London architecture, national architecture, which has anything to compare to this. Okay, um, so completely different league to all the other charities, and therefore able to deploy resources and take risks uh, that most other organisations could only dream of. And um, with these considerable advantages, um, many people feel RIBA should be an irrepressible force for positive change. Um, uh, but it's the gap between that vast potential and the sometimes lacklustre reality um, which then seeds this kind of ongoing rancour among its members uh, and, and in the wider world, people who aren't members uh, often. Um, so in that context, uh, what kind of person should take on this new head of cultural role? And, you know, what, what are we going to be expecting from them? It's a huge challenge. It's really a huge challenge. I think a, a head of collections who can elevate and shine a light on the RIBA's globally significant archive of more than 4 million items is a fantastic idea. I mean, this should have been done long ago. Uh, and and they've tried. I mean, there was even a proposal to do it at the Roundhouse a few years back. What sort of person should take this on? You have to be very robust and very forceful to navigate all the bureaucracy of the RIBA. Interestingly, you know, in my area, when Sunan Prasad was president, he made a lot of progress in this area. The, issue, the RIBA issued a lot of guidance on, on sustainable design. And then it kind of went quiet. It went quiet until the Sustainable Futures Group just got this by the teeth and pushed it through. And that was down to Gary Clark. And we have now, you know, the RIBA Sustainable Outcomes. We have the 2030 targets. And these things, these targets are making their way into briefs and making change. And we need someone who, who, can, who can do that in the area of culture and diversity. I think that's a really interesting point. When you look at the job description for this role, uh, which didn't have a salary put next to it, um, and actually we, we, I couldn't find it on the RIBA actual vacancies on their own website it was it was listed on guardian jobs that was the only place uh, where i could find it uh, by like a recruitment agency um but the uh, it, it goes into quite length that the person needs to have a, a strength with collections like an experience of, of running and having access to collections but it's hard to think of someone who's got that unique skill set of being both good at the fabric of objects and then also a real fighter who can like push their way through considerable resistance yeah yeah, that's really interesting. And I think another challenge of, of the architecture collection is that, you know, if you're trying to speak to a broader audience as well and bring architecture to a broader, broader audience, um, not everybody can, can understand drawings and plans. So it requires really careful thought about how to pitch these, how to, how to pitch whatever exhibitions do come forward. And just the emphasis, you know, I mean, we're in a different place. Architecture is in a crisis right now. The cultural offer of the RIBA should be should be on the forefront of this. Absolutely. Well, look, we're on the topic of culture. Uh, before we go, let's have a quick look at what's going on in London's cultural scene uh, this week. There's some really, really cool stuff coming up. Um, something that's caught my eye is the fact that the Garden of Privatised Delights, uh, that was the 
British Pavilion exhibition that was in Venice last year. Now it's going to be in the building centre and it's a free exhibition that we can all go there and enjoy. I think that's quite that's quite fun. Is it, is it has that caught your eye, Hattie? I'm curious. Yeah, I'll definitely go check it out. I wanted to make a pitch for people to visit Q. Now is really the time to see Q in all its glory. I was there about 10 days ago on a sunny weekend um, for the first time, I guess, since lockdown. And and many of the projects completed over the last few years have now really bedded in. And one of my favorites is John Paulson's bridge across the lake, which has granite treads and a sublime balustrade of bronze uprights. And near the bridge, I discovered a, a new, I think it was completed in 2019, state-of-the-art arboretum nursery, which houses approximately 14,000 tree seedlings and explains Kew's um, research in this area. In other words, what kind of trees do we need to be planting now that are going to be resistant to climate change? It's really fascinating. These are all really good suggestions for any listeners also planning anything for the holidays uh, coming up next month, um, which is always nice to get out for a day trip. Um, One thing that's coming up before then uh, on the 7th of April is uh, our Open Cities keynote lecture, uh, Architecture for Society, which will be delivered by Kate McIntosh, um, the acclaimed public housing architect of the post-war era, whose work... um, made a massive impact on South London, uh, particularly at Dawson Heights in East Dulwich. Hattie, are you coming along to that talk? I definitely would like to come. We have just released a new batch of tickets um, for that, so um, it, it, you haven't missed out. You can still get a ticket. Hattie, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the Lundown uh, this week. Hope you can join us again in the future. And I'd just like to invite you to to share um, some links with our readers where people can stay up to speed on the things you're doing and the Climate Champions podcast, for example. Thanks so much for having me, Merlin. Yes, please do listen to my podcast. You can find me on Spotify, AJ Climate Champions, or any other podcast platform. And feedback, thoughts, or or contact me with with, uh, ideas for people you'd like to hear from. Uh, I also would like to give a shout out for uh, the book I recently co-authored, we're coming up to one year from publication uh, with, uh, it's called Energy People Buildings uh, with Judith Kempion and Sophie Pelsmakers. And this is really a book about all the different aspects of buildings that go into its energy performance, especially people and how people use buildings. And I'm working on another book. I said that was going to be my last book, but I'm working on another book that I'm quite excited about, which is it has a a working title of um, Materials, an Environmental Primer for Designers. Uh, And my co-author is uh, Joe Jack Williams of Field & Clegg Bradley. And we're just getting going with that now, so it hopefully will be out uh, before the end of next year. So on that note, uh, thank you for coming on the show and uh, thanks for being on London. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast by Open City and the London Society, breaking down the big news stories in London's built environment scene each week. Today's show was edited by Ross Hudson and me, Phineas Harper, and featured the voices of Hattie Hartman from the Architects Journal and Merlin Fulcher. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all of these issues and many more as well. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.comslash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com code SUMMER.